This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Glad you're here. Got a lot to do today. I uh, have some perspective to share that I, I think is important. A, a quick question that I'm going to ask a little later. Would you rather live today with as much money as you have right now or have as much money as John D. Rockefeller, who's the richest human in modern history, or would you rather be as rich as John D. Rockefeller, but you have to live 100 years ago when John D. Rockefeller was alive? So wait, would you rather be as rich as you are right now, and I know you don't feel that rich, or be the richest man in human history, modern history, but you got to live 100 years ago? little thought experiment. We'll, we'll go through that uh, a little bit later, and I'll give you the punchline. Uh, I would rather live today because... We live right now even better than the richest man on earth, which I think is is good perspective to have every once in a while. Got a couple of Abraham Lincoln stories I want to share, one that applies to our life uh, and then one that relates to the political world. And obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about the debate that was uh, a couple of days ago as well. But first, this is something I was thinking about before the debate, and I think it's still relevant because there's still a little bit of time left uh, for the guys and Super Tuesday coming up and might pretty much wrap it up. But uh, who knows? Maybe there's still a little bit left for uh, for Rubio and Cruz in particular. I was thinking about what Cruz would need to do at the last debate to make a splash. Because I think we can all agree that you ne- they needed to make a splash, right? If they just did the same thing they did in the previous nine debates, then nothing would change and then Trump would win it in a landslide. So if I was on Cruz's team, what would my suggestion be? It's last ditch effort time. I mean, some polls have Trump tied with Cruz in Texas for the love of Pete, right? So these guys can't be playing it safe. Last chance. So I'm thinking, all right, what, do you, what can you go after Trump about? You can't go after him for being mean. Has it worked? You can't go after him for not having you know, detailed policies or even principles. You can't go after him for not being religious, right? He said the other day, I read the Bible more than anyone, right? Like you can't go after him for business. That doesn't work. You can't go after him for his family. He's got a great family. 
can't go after him for his past life. People don't care. You can't go after him for his previous views on abortion. That doesn't matter. They played those clips for two weeks in South Carolina. Didn't do anything. You can't do anything about the military. You can't say he has no experience. People like that. I mean, you got nothing. Like all these things have been tried with zero avail. So I'm thinking, what can Cruz say? Cruz in particular, and I'll tell you why later, as opposed to Rubio. What could Cruz say at this last debate that would make a difference? He can't be foolish enough to do the same thing, right? So I'm thinking, okay, what is what is the one chink in Trump's armor? What's the one? Now, there's, there may be a lot of things you don't like about him, but that doesn't mean it's it's a chink in his armor. Because a lot of things that you don't like about him, a lot of other people do. Now, you may not like that he's rude and crude, but a lot of people do like that. So that's not a weakness, per se. I think the one chink in Trump's armor is, he has said and continues to say that he gets along with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He says, I get along with these people, with these Democrats. So I think Cruz needed to come out and make it seem like Trump is buddy-buddy with the people that conservatives despise the most. Schumer, Reid, Pelosi, Obama, and Cruz needs to make himself seem like the most hated person in D.C. If Cruz can be the most hated person in D.C. and make Trump seem like uh, a well-liked, nice insider. That's how it needs to be framed. Because, you know, one of the attacks on Cruz from Trump and others is that he's not well-liked. And I'm saying, Cruz, you got to take that and, and wear that proudly. You got to step up on stage and say, yeah, I'm the most hated person in D.C. for good reason. I think Cruz got to get up there and say, I, there's one candidate up on this stage that has been described by Democrats in D.C. as vile and heinous and evil. And I'm proud to say that I've been there for three years and I've made more enemies than friends. Donald up here says, you know, you got to work with everybody. You got to get along with everybody. No, you don't. Not in D.C. You don't. D.C. needs an enema and we need to tear this town down. And all those people that Donald gives money to. I'll fire them all. I'm so hated in D.C. The left is more scared of me than they are Donald Trump. Why? Because they know that when you hire me, I'll fire them. Because I'm sick and tired of Republicans in D.C. not getting anything done. This is it. This is our last chance. I'll tear it all down. You won't even recognize D.C. anymore when I'm done with it. He gets along with people in D.C. The same people trying to ruin our country. Those people who hate who are trying to ruin our country, they hate me. I think that needed to be his play. Something like that. Because Trump has done that against Cruz. He says, oh, man, you're nasty. No one likes you. No one's endorsed you in the Senate even, man. You don't get along with anybody. I think Cruz needs to say, yep, that's right. And for good reason. Because you, Mr. Trump, you, you say you get along with these. I don't, you don't want, we don't want anyone to go in there and get along with you. Now, Keep in mind, this is last-ditch effort kind of stuff because I think we're in last-ditch effort mode here for the other candidates. If I was Ted Cruz, I wouldn't have led with this a couple months ago. But you got you to go down swinging if this is it. You got to tap into people's anger and hatred of D.C. It's the first thing. Because that's the number one takeaway from these exit polls, right? 
Last, I think in, what was the last election? I guess it was, no, Nevada. 97% of voters are fed up with D.C. Which, I, and I'm thinking, well, who are the 3%? Like, who are the 3% of Republican voters who are like, yeah, things are going fine or great? Like, well, huh? how is it even only, only 97%? But anyway, it's 97%. So tap into that. I'm angry in D.C. I'm going to tear this place to the ground, <laughs> right? Now, this is what this also does, that approach. Trump only has two comments. If Cruz comes back and says, I'm the most hated person in D.C., Trump can come back with, no, uh, I'm, the, I'm the most hated person in D.C. And like, what is that? That sounds desperate. Or he can say, listen, you know, you got to get along with people if you want to get things done. That could come across as weak. And you know, and we've covered this from for, for months now, that the entire campaign for Trump is, has been framed as strength versus weakness. Trump is strong, everyone else is weak, or some variation of it. Low energy, sleepy, sweaty, robotic, slow clubhead speed, like whatever, some variation of weak. So there has to be a way to flip the script and make Trump look weak. If Trump's whole thing is I'm strong, you got to find a way to make him look weak. And I think the weakest thing that Trump says or has done is when he talks about how he can get along with Democrats. And Cruz has an opening here to be the person who is hated by Democrats, which plays very well in a Republican primary. Now, Trump, this whole line about getting along with Democrats, that plays great in the general election. He's not there yet. You're still in the primary now. I think, he, I think Trump played that card a little bit too early. So Cruz had a chance to, <laughs> to play the I'm the most hated person in D.C., I'll destroy every bureaucracy in this city. I'll fire every person who's sucking money from your paycheck. Pelosi's scared of me. Reed is terrified of me. Obama hates me because I'm going to destroy his legacy and everything he's done these last seven years in the White House. And every executive action that he's done, I'm going to sign another one that's going to eliminate them all. Right? He's got to be tough, strong, powerful. And Trump can come back with, well, no, you, you need to work with everybody. You got to get along with everybody. He said a couple times, I can be the most politically correct person in the, in the world if I want to be. I think that's weak. I, I mean, and I think there's, there's, do you know what I'm trying to say? The difference between a general election and a primary, right? In a general election, that's, that's okay. That plays well to people. But in a primary, no, I want someone who's going to go there and be hated. I don't know. I and he did okay. So that was what we talked about a couple of days ago. That's what I was thinking about before the debate. There were a couple times he played that card, um, but not as as deliberately as needed. It was actually Rubio one time who said, and I think we have a clip of this. We can play it later. He said, um, "The insurance companies hate me because I wanted to get rid of this bailout fund that was in Obamacare, and the insurance companies and the insurance lobbyists hate me for it." Good, like good, good start. Cruz did something about, hey, this guy, Donald, he's uh, the most liked person. Jimmy Carter likes uh, Trump over me because he knows that Trump can be malleable where I, as to I, I will not be. So he sort of alluded to this a little bit, but it wasn't strong enough. It wasn't deliberate enough, and it wasn't his main argument. So I, th- I think he he maybe missed an opportunity, which unfortunately may be his last now, when was the debate? Thursday? Uh, Friday morning, Rubio came out, and he flipped the script. 
He made Trump look weak, pathetic, frantic. Do you hear what he said? He was he did his rally, and he's done this a few other times, word for word. Um, but he says, Trump, oh, man, let me tell you what happened during the commercial break. I saw Trump backstage, and he was frantic. First of all, he's sweaty upper lip. He had to powder his lip with makeup. What's that? He's a sweaty guy. I'm a nervous guy, right? Oh, man, that's such a Trumpian attack. Um, you know what's also Trumpian about this? Trump is really good at breaking the fourth wall. You know when you watch um, Modern Family or The Office, sometimes they'll look at the camera. It's breaking the fourth wall. It brings you into the storyline. Trump does that all the time, he'll say. Uh, I'll give you an example. Neil Young. So Neil Young, uh, Trump played Rock in the Free World at one of his rallies. And Neil Young came out and said, stop playing my song. So Trump said, what a clown, this Neil Young. He was in my office a couple weeks ago asking me for money. Right? And tweeted out a picture and all of, of Neil Young and him shaking hands. It's like, what a hypocrite. That's breaking down the fourth wall. It brings, brings the audience in. Rubio did that. Let me tell you what happened during the commercial break. Behind the scenes, right? Anything that follows that, people are going to be listening to. Let me tell you what happened during the commercial break. Trump asked for a full-length mirror. I'm thinking, why do you want a full-length mirror? The podium only goes up to here. What, did you wet yourself? Oh, listen, I wish this, de- this whole debate and everything was about policy and principles. But Trump changed the game. And Rubio yesterday was the first person to play that game and maybe to play it as well as Trump. You got to make, if you want to take down Trump, you have to make him look weak. You can't, you can't be strong against his strength. Does that make sense? You can't try to out strong Trump, but you can try to make him look weak. And Rubio did that yesterday by, by mockery and ridicule and demeaning and, and, and different things like that, which Trump has done uh, for his, uh, his whole life. So I don't know, just some thoughts, one 888 They're thrown out here a little bit here and there at the debate, but nothing as, as powerful as it needed to do. Uh, and even then, if they did it, maybe still too little, uh, too late. But Rubio gave a good go at it on uh, the day after the debate. We'll see if there's enough time for it. one 888 Mike Slater, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On The Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. You're listening to Mike Slater. 
Slider, Chris Slider. Thanks for being here. Slider Radio on uh, on Twitter. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Oh, we just put up a new video uh, the other day uh, about uh, a kid here in San Diego. Uh, it's a long story. I've, I've told part of it before. I'll do more detail later, but it's it's we're calling it Bryson's Make-A-Wish Journey, and this is episode two. Episode two of Bryson's Make-A-Wish Journey on our Facebook page right now. It's awesome. Uh, please check that out, and it will brighten your day. I guarantee it. Um, we honestly don't have too much politics today. Let me just make one final point on what I think Cruz should have done in the debate, kind of did, should have done a lot more of it. Maybe Mr. Chance, as we're running out of time here. I don't I don't know how it's going to look after Super Tuesday. I guess we'll have to wait and uh, see how much Trump wins by, how many states he wins and all the rest. But I want to steal some imagery from Alex Castellanos. He said this um, uh, last year. He said the only way to take Trump down is to take him down the same way that Brutus killed Caesar. Now, excuse the graphic imagery uh, here, but uh, I think it's relevant. Uh, How did Brutus kill Caesar? He got real close, snuggled up, and shivved him in the ribs. Slater, what could that possibly have to do? The point is, hug the message but not the messenger. If you want to take down Trump, you have to hug the message, not the messenger. Him, you shiv in the ribs. So what's the message? We need someone who's going to go to D.C. I don't even want to say someone strong. Let's go to D.C. and destroy the place. Like, like it's got to be that drastic. That's the message. The message is in principles. Gosh, I wish, and I should have done this disclaimer earlier. I apologize. I wish this entire campaign was about principles and policies. Not. Trump changed that game. It's been changing for a long time, but Trump just put it in overdrive. It's not about principles. It's not about policies. Gosh, I wish it was. It's optics. It's all about needing someone strong who will win, but it's more than even strength. It's someone who is angry and someone who's going to tear the town down. And I think Cruz, and maybe Rubio still can't, I don't know, but Cruz had a chance to say, Obama's, they hate me the most. In D.C., Obama's terrified of me. He doesn't care about Trump. They like Trump. Democrats like Trump. Democrats in D.C. like Trump. They hate me. I will bring everything that Obama did to the ground and the bureaucracies that ruin your life. I will crush them. Vote for me and I will fire everybody. What's Trump going to say to that? Oh, no, I'll fire everybody. Or he's going to say, well, listen, uh, Cruz, that's, that's a little too far you don't want to go that far You're like down darn right it's far mr trump why are you so weak why are you so weak what bureaucracies do you want to keep what bureaucracies do you want to grow because i want to eliminate them i want to make sure the department of education never has any control over our kids again because it won't even exist you're you're going to grow it probably you're going to cut some deals and grow it you had a chance to flip it or flip the script And I say, I've been talking about Cruz because I don't think Rubio, Rubio is not hated by people in D.C. So he can't play that card as much as Cruz can. Cruz is hated in D.C. So he can use it to his advantage. Remember a couple weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, we talked about how the day after Super Tuesday, the person who's in the lead is going to be the person who can do two things. First, turn their liability into an asset. So they're negative into a strength and turn the other guy's asset into a liability. 
how can you turn the other guy's strength into that person's weakness? And I know, like, oh, Captain Obvious, Slater, thanks a lot. Like, great, you know, crack insight there. Like, it's really hard to do. No one's been able to do it. Now, Cruz's liability, because Trump framed it this way, is that no one gets along with him. Great. Own it. Own it. Own it because then you can explain why no one likes me. No one likes me because everything that they hold dear, I'm going to get rid of. That's why they hate me. So there's such an opportunity there uh, that, that wasn't wasn't hit strong enough. Now, that's Cruz turning his negative into a positive or perceived negative into a positive. What Rubio did yesterday mocking, ridiculing, demeaning Trump in his Twitter. He took Trump's strength, which is mocking, ridiculing, and demeaning on Twitter, and turned that strength into a weakness by by mocking his spelling. You know, the the goofiness of some of the things he said on Twitter, all the rest, just demeaning Trump uh, through his Twitter, which was his strength. So he was able to turn Trump's strength into a weakness. And I said after on Super Tuesday, the day after, whoever wins is the person who could best do that. But again, maybe too little too late. 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back with a story about uh, Abraham Lincoln and what he did on an incredible day of disappointment for him. We'll tell the story next. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Couple. Abraham Lincoln stories to share. Been reading uh, Team of Rivals, which is a book that I will be quoting for the next three years because it's taking me forever to read. Tiny print. But I love stories of Lincoln because they're so they're so relatable. I'm, I'm reading this about this guy in 1840s, 50s, and uh, it's going to be going on right now. Like Same thing. It's crazy. I want to share this story here. I, there's a lot of adjectives you can use for this one. And I'm curious, maybe you can leave on a word on Twitter, an adjective on Twitter to describe Lincoln at this time and what he did here. I'm going to go with gracious. Forgiving maybe is a better one. I don't know. I want to know what you think. Slider radio on Twitter after, after you hear this story. What's like the overwhelming emotion? You're like, wow, that man was so What? I'd love to to get your take on uh, your interpretation of this. So 1855, something really bad happened in his life six months before this. Maybe I can tell that uh, a little later, but just know that this was a low point in his life when this happened. A low point already. So Lincoln was a lawyer in Illinois, which back then was like backwoods country. Like, like, all right. So, I'll give me an example of how backwoods this is. 1850, what do you think the population of Chicago was? 
Take a guess. Population of Chicago in 1850. Today, it's the second biggest city in the country. Third biggest, third biggest city in the country. New York, LA, Chicago. What's the, so what's, what was the population in 1850? 20, you nailed it. 29,000. Isn't that crazy? 29,000 people. That's a small town today. 29,000 people. Okay, that was Chicago. Now, he lived in Springfield. It's about 200 miles outside of Chicago. So you can imagine how little tiny that, that place was. So the biggest patent case ever was being tried in Chicago. And each side had the two biggest law firms uh, from New York. So picture this scene. You got these two big shot, rich, wealthy, prestigious lawyers battling it out way in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, Chicago, population 29,000. So one of the lawyers came to Chicago and decided that he's going to hire a lawyer from Illinois who knows the ropes with these backwoods people better than a New York lawyer would, right? Because the judge is going to be from Chicago, from the country. So you might as well get a country lawyer there who can relate a little better. So this, uh, this lawyer from New York knocked on the door of Abraham Lincoln. Tiny little hut of an office. New York, big hotshot lawyer, knocks on the door. Abraham Lincoln opens the door wearing, uh, not wearing a coat, no vest, shirt sleeves rolled up, bottom of his pants not even down to his ankles. So the New York lawyer is like, oh, made a horrible mistake even coming here. But they met, they talked, and uh, the guy actually really liked Lincoln. So he hired him, gave him a nice paycheck up front, and then a bigger one coming on the way when the case is over. So New York lawyer leaves. Lincoln's like over the moon. He just came off this horrible disappointment in his life. He lost the Senate race. He, uh, and now here he is. Oh my gosh, God is good. I got this great opportunity that this, uh, this guy just knocked on my door and here I am. I'm going to be a part of this team, the biggest patent case in history. So the lawyer leaves. Lincoln just dives head first into preparing for this case. This is big break. My big shot chance to impress the most impressive lawyers in the country. So the lawyer goes back to New York, and when he gets there, he finds out that the case is no longer going to be tried in Chicago. And because the case moved locations, he no longer had a need for Abraham Lincoln. Weeks went by, and the letter that that lawyer sent to Lincoln, telling him his services would no longer be needed, Never made it. So Lincoln kept preparing and preparing and preparing. Only thing in his life was preparing for this case. A couple weeks go by, he sends a letter to the lawyers in New York that said, hey, man, you said you would send me uh, some more information. I haven't received it yet, but that's okay. I'm still working hard over here. I'm going to be ready by September. Now, in the meantime, Lincoln actually went to Chicago to get some papers that he needed because the lawyers never sent it to him. Like they said he would. This whole time he never knew that he wasn't even hired by him anymore. So September came around. Lincoln traveled to Chicago. Already. And that's where he found out the case wasn't there anymore. It was now in Cincinnati. So he went there. Now, imagine this scene. He's in the courthouse. Court building. He sees that lawyer guy who hired him walking down the hall with a team of lawyers around him, including the lawyer that he hired instead of Abraham Lincoln. This new lawyer, his name was Edwin Stanton. 
Edwin Stanton said of that day, he said, I'll never forget the sight of that tall, rawly boned, ungainly backwoodsman. Talking of Lincoln. With coarse, ill-fitting clothing, trousers hardly reached his ankles. Stanton, the new lawyer, called Lincoln a stupid, long-armed ape. So this team of lawyers, I imagine this like I've seen a Mean Girls, except old guys, uh, walk past Lincoln, who's standing in the, in the lobby of the courtroom. They walk past Lincoln, this whole team, and they go into the courtroom uh, and leaving Lincoln behind with with months of work and papers left in his arms. Imagine that disappointment. He's like, oh, I've been preparing this for months. This was my break. And they didn't even tell me that I wasn't hired anymore. I did all this work for nothing, lost my opportunity, and here they are right in front of me. They walk right by me, and he called me a stupid long-armed ape. Imagine that disappointment. Maybe you've been there. I guarantee there's someone listening now who thought they were going to get this big job, thought maybe they had this job interview you were going to, and it was a big deal. You're all excited about it. And you get there and you know, they gave it to someone else or what, something like, you know, whatever. It was a big disappointment for Lincoln. So a couple weeks later, Lincoln received a check in the mail from that lawyer who hired him. And it was that final paycheck. The lawyer felt bad that Lincoln did all the work and didn't know that he was fired. So he gave him the paycheck anyway. Lincoln sent it back. He said, I don't deserve this because I never argued in front of the judge. Now, I could stop the story right there, and that'd be a, that'd be a nice story, right? Here's Abraham Lincoln in the face of defeat like this, you know, choosing to to return this check because in his eyes he didn't didn't deserve it. That's a nice story. That's a that's a gracious man right there returning that that check after he was wronged in a way. But that's not the end of the story. This is 1855. Five years later this backwoods nobody becomes president of the United States of America. And he has to appoint a secretary of war. Who does he pick? Edwin Stanton, the lawyer who was hired instead of him. The lawyer who called him a long armed ape, a stupid long arm. Lincoln could have been bitter towards this guy. Could have held a vendetta for being so humiliated, for being mocked openly. Right? Lincoln's there trying to impress all these people. Guy walks by, calls him a stupid long-armed ape. People could have given him his big break, he thought at the time. But Lincoln didn't hold a grudge. And he appointed that man to the most important position in his cabinet, Secretary of War. Not only that, but Edwin Stanton, in his own words, said he grew to love Lincoln more than any person outside of his immediate family. I, I love that, like, that he could show, that he could just extend that olive branch to this man as opposed to holding a grudge. So I just got to ask, where can you show graciousness to someone? How can you show forgiveness, some relationship in your life? How can you extend 
an olive branch and be as gracious of a man as Abraham Lincoln was at that moment. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Maybe gracious and forgiving. Maybe those aren't even the best words. I don't. Maybe you get something else out of that story. Slater Radio on Twitter. If you see it, think of another another word or another lesson from that. But that's what I get out of it. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I came across a great story the other day, or a quote of Lincoln that ties into this. I don't want to screw it up though. So let me give a during the break here. I'll look it up about quarreling. Don't about not getting into quarrels, not getting into arguments with people, not holding grudges. I'll share that when we get back. one 93 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. The, yeah, admirable. Someone just sent over admirable. Absolutely. Uh, adjective for, for Lincoln. Slater Radio, if you have one. Uh, not not necessarily Lincoln in general, but even just that one story I just shared. Real quick, because I got a couple things I want to share in the next five minutes here, but I think we shared this last week. Uh, I'll do it real fast. Six months before the story I just shared, that disappointment, that crushing disappointment of his, six months before that, he was running for U.S. Senate. In Illinois. And back then, the state legislature appointed U.S. senators. You may remember this story, so I'll go quick. So on the ninth round of voting, Abraham Lincoln was in first place. He needed 51 votes to win, and he had 47. The second place guy was right behind him, and the third place guy was was way behind. He had only five votes. And Lincoln needed four more to win. So he goes to the guy, after nine rounds of voting, he goes to the guy with four votes, or five votes, and he says, listen, support me and I'll win. <laughs> like, what do I need you to do? And he said, no, 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 there's no way we're going to support you. And it's because these five guys were a long story, but you know, they were Democrats and he was a Whig and they weren't going to blah, blah, blah. So Lincoln said, all right, fine. I'm going to drop out. And he told all of his 47 people to support the guy who had five votes. And that guy went on to become the U S Senator. You think what like the guy in first dropped out and gave his votes to the guy in last how could that possibly be why because the guy in last was against slavery and the guy in second was pro-slavery so lincoln would rather he drop out he himself drop out than maybe have the pro-slavery guy win that story just like blows my mind who would do that today Everyone's so ego-driven as opposed to purpose-driven that no one, that's just so, be ridiculous. I mean, I guess the equivalent would be Rubio and Cruz drop out and give their support to Carson or something like that's what that would look like. Now, in the end, it worked out really well for, uh, uh, for, for Lincoln because Lincoln made a lot of friends with that gesture. The two other main guys who were running for president four years later uh, or five years later, they uh, they won their Senate races, but they made a lot of enemies in the process. And that's why it's one reason why Lincoln uh, won the presidency a couple of years later. But he didn't know that at the time. And although he made that gracious effort, he was just he just agonized over it. like it destroyed him that he lost that Senate race 
uh, that way, even though he, uh, he knows he made the right choice. So that was the disappointment. And then five years later, he had that other disappointment, which is the story we just shared. So anywho, uh, here's the quote I was uh, looking for. Because again, the question at the end was that I asked, is like, where, how, I know, listen, you know, you either know it or you don't. Either someone came right to your mind or not. Someone that you need to extend an olive branch to. Um, there's no need to drive that point home. You either you know that person already. So I love this quote here. This is a letter he wrote in 1863. Uh, and this was to someone, a, a younger person who had political aspirations, want to run for office, and he was asking for advice. And he's talking about Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet. And in Hamlet, uh, the advice of a father to his son was, beware of entrance to a quarrel, but being in one, in a fight, but being in one, Bear it that the opposed may be beware of thee. So the point is, like, if you're going to get in a fight, win. And Lincoln says, yeah, that's good, but not the best advice. The best advice is quarrel not at all. Here's Here's why. No man resolved to make the most of himself can spare time for personal contention. No man resolved to make the best of himself can spare time for arguing, for quarreling. It's a waste of time. It's a distraction. And if you're resolved to make the most of yourself, you got no time to waste with these, these stupid, trivial things. Quick story on this one. Beginning of the war, beginning of the war, Lincoln uh, goes to see his general, McClellan. Goes to his house. He's not there yet. So the housekeeper, whatever, says, hey, you can go ahead and you can wait in the, in the living room. So Lincoln's there with his assistant, with his secretary, whatever. And McClellan gets home, sees the president of the United States sitting in his living room, stares at him, turns away, walks upstairs, totally ignores him. So the secretary, the, the assistant of Lincoln freaks out. He's like, oh, can you believe that the general would do that to you? How disrespectful. Unbelievable. We got to fire that man right now. And Lincoln said... This is not the time to stand on ceremony. I would hold McClellan's horse if it means he would win the war. (laughs) I will humble myself completely. I'll hold his horse if it means he'll win the war. No man resolved to make the most of himself can waste time fighting with others. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday, Slater Radio on Twitter. And uh, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We have a new video up there. Uh, actually, we put two videos up there. One... I'll give you the short of both of these stories because I don't want to ruin the whole thing. But um, a couple days ago, we put a video up there about Lily. So Lily was born in a homeless shelter. Her mom then passed away from breast cancer and she was adopted by another family. This is here in San Diego and she was adopted by a family, I think, in Indiana or Illinois. She just turned 12 years old and her family thought that she was old enough to find out 
her story. So when they told her her story that she was born in a homeless shelter, she decided to raise money. She raised $1,500, bought toys and supplies for the kids who are currently living in the homeless shelter, flew to San Diego and passed the toys out to all the kids. She's 12 years old. Incredible. Like she's been amazing. So we were there with, with, and we videotaped it and interviewed her and her adopted mom. And, and it was so cool to see the people who still work at this homeless shelter. Uh, it's called Father Joe's Village. Who knew Lily. Who knew Lily when she was a baby. And now they saw her for the first time since then. Right, She's 12. And they're like, oh my gosh, you look just like her. It's such a cool video. So that's on our Facebook page right now. And then we have uh, episode two of Bryson's Make-A-Wish Journey. So Bryson is a sophomore uh, at school here in San Diego. He has brain cancer. So you may have you may remember the video we did about four months ago of Bryson's football team who all shaved their heads before a game. It was right before it was a homecoming game, actually. So you can imagine you know, they wanted to look good for their prom dates, but they all shaved their heads for Bryson, and they all took their helmets off at the same time in the middle of the field and surprised Bryson with it, and they yelled, um, now we're all the same, which meant so much to Bryson, who was in the middle of his uh, chemo. So that was four months ago. We made a video, Make-A-Wish Foundation found it, or People Magazine found it, and then Make-A-Wish Foundation found it, and wanted to grant him a wish. So Bryson's one wish that he wanted was to be a part of restoring a 1966 Mustang. You remember this story. I've talked about this one a lot. So the second episode, the second video we just made and released is him seeing the broken down, busted up Mustang for the very first time, and video of him in his hospital bed getting finding out for the first time that his wish was going to be granted and he's, he has pictures of the car and uh, he got the title and everything and it's a really cool moment with him and his family so that is all on our facebook page got a lot of good stuff there you can search for the mike slater show on facebook and please share those videos because these two kids oh by the way i never told you this so i talked to bryson on my local show and i said bryson man this is gonna be so cool when this car is done First of all, the car is, it looks horrible, right? It's so busted up. And the whole theme of this for everyone involved with fixing it is that this car has cancer, just like Bryson. And all these people, the best auto oncologists in San Diego are going to make this car better. Just like Bryson every day is working to become healthy again. And these, the car and the human are going to, are going to get better, are going to get healthy again together at the same time. And it just gives a little bit of hope to Bryson, a little bit of a reason uh, to, to wake up and get out of bed in the morning to be a part of this uh, restoration and, and watch it grow and watch it get healthy and pick out different parts of it and all this stuff. So, oh, and then I, I told Bryson, I said, Bryson, man, it's going to be so cool when this thing's done and you get to drive to school in your new Mustang, right? You know what Bryson says? He goes, yeah, that's cool. But what I really want to do is go back to the children's hospital and get kids with cancer and drive them around. And show them that you can beat cancer too. I said, oh, so you're just the man then and make me feel like this big about myself. Because my first thought is, how cool am I going to be driving around a 66 Mustang to school? And your first thought is, how can I help other kids with this car? Awesome. So you get to meet Bryson and his family on, on our video. Uh, you can search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook. We get to hang out all week. All right, uh, let's add a little perspective as, as if those two stories don't already add enough perspective. Um, I like to do this every once in a while. In this segment, it, it might be meaningless to you right now. It's totally fine. If so, just 
if you can just put it in your back pocket and remember it for another day. Or the segment may come at just the right time. So I figured I might as well throw it out there. I want to talk about something that happened 90 years ago. The president of the United States at the time. His son died while his dad was in office. Isn't that crazy? Like, I never knew that. I didn't know that a, that a sitting president's son died when he was in office. And it was only 90 years ago. Calvin Coolidge, who's my favorite president. His youngest son, Calvin Coolidge Jr., was 16. You're thinking, geez, what, like, what, what did he die of? He was playing lawn tennis with his brother on the grounds of the White House. Got a blister on his toe, his middle toe on his right foot. And, <laughs> what's the story? Yeah, he died from that. A blister on his toe. He died from Staphylococcus aureus. Staph infection. Got in his bloodstream and killed him. Happened a lot back then. Only 90 years ago. Just your ordinary wounds. Blister on your toe. Died. It was really easy. Um to die from a staph infection. Well, it was really easy to know if someone had a staph infection, but there was nothing they could do about it. Now, just to show how prevalent it was, Calvin Coolidge wasn't the first sitting president to have a family member die of a staph infection. Lincoln's only grandson, Jack, was 16. He died of a staph infection when a surgeon removed an abscess underneath his arm. Nine years prior to that, President Garfield, he died. Like he himself and and people are like, well, no, he was shot. No, the bullet didn't kill him. It was the doctor's attempts to remove the bullet. And it was the unsanitary equipment that they used gave him a staph infection. He died from the staph infection. So I'm thinking. What? Like, like you're telling me a president's grandson, a sitting president's grandson, a sitting president's son. And a sitting president all died from staph infections. How could they not have had medicine for this? This was only 90 years ago. 90 years ago when this happened to Calvin Coolidge, penicillin was still four years away. The invention of penicillin and the clinical use of penicillin was still two decades away. So we're talking late 1940s. There was enough penicillin in the country to treat 10 patients. After the war, 1940s, there was enough penicillin to treat 10 patients patients this wasn't that long ago you know, a couple days ago i uh, highlighted this app it's called heal i only th- i don't i'm sorry to bring it up even i think it only is available in la san diego and san francisco it just started in la or started in la and it just moved to san francisco and san diego it is uber for doctor house calls. So you pick up your phone. I used it two weeks ago. Pull out your phone. Say, just like Uber, say, I need a doctor. And a real life doctor will come to your home in an hour. Or less. And you're thinking, holy cow, how much does that cost? $99. Or your insurance copay, which is, mine's 20. 20 bucks. And that doctor will bring with them on their person 
more medical capability than has ever been available to any human who has ever lived on this planet. They have medicines on them that could have saved a president's life or the life of a president's son. But back then it didn't exist. And today we take it so for granted. The app's called Heal. If you're listening in California, H-E-A-L, I think, I think it's only available in, in California now. But the point is that it's going to grow across the country. It's amazing. My uh, brother-in-law needed, some, uh, needed a prescription. So instead of going to the clinic or the doctor's office, we did Heal. The doctor came to our house, signed in the prescription, automatically got it sent to CVS or Walgreens or whatever, and we picked it up. Like 100 bucks to do all that. And we're just like watching a movie on a Sunday afternoon. Like, it's crazy. So anyway... We're so prosperous now, and we don't even realize it. So Don Boudreaux asked a really good question. He said, who would you rather be? Would you rather be who you are right now with as much money as you make right now, which I'm sure you're thinking is not that much. I wish I made more, right? We all think that. Would you rather have as much money as you have right now and live today, or would you rather have as much money as John D. Rockefeller, who is the richest person in modern history, you know, behind Solomon, right, right? Would you rather have as much money as John D. Rockefeller? And the only catch is you have to live 100 years ago in 1916. So, so right now, you're, everyone listening now thinks, man, I wish I had more money. Okay? I'm going to give you more money than anyone has ever had. Deal. I'll take it. Wait. You just got to live 100 years ago. Would you take the deal? Would you take the deal? More money than anyone's ever had. You just got to live 100 years ago. My first thought is, yeah, I'd, take, I'd have a huge home in California. I'd have a, a, right on the water, have a huge New York City apartment, penthouse suite, Fifth Avenue, and I'd have a place in the Bahamas. More money than I, I like, I'm coming. Why wouldn't you? Here's the thing. It's going to take you weeks to get from one place to another. And the rail car that you got to take doesn't have air conditioning. It was just invented. You might you might have air conditioning in your house, but no one else does. There's no restaurants. None of your friends' home have air conditioning. It was, it was invented, I think, like 1910 or something. So it was just, just started. And these homes wouldn't really have heat in the winter either. I mean, they have a fire, right? That's a... Okay, I could put up with that later. All right, well, you couldn't watch television in 1916. That didn't exist yet. And actually, the radio wasn't invented until 1920. So you got four more years till the radio. How about food, right? Even in New York City, there's no restaurants like we know them today. There were no exotic foods to eat, no interesting foods to eat, just the basics, if that. And that wasn't even as healthy or um, sanitary. There's no Wi-Fi, no computers, no medical care. Your wife or daughter probably died giving birth. High chance of that. Uh, No dental care, no contact lenses, let alone LASIK. The clothes you're wearing right now? Probably nicer quality than anything John D. Rockefeller ever owned. Again, richest man in history. He didn't have modern plumbing. Didn't have clean water. Not not as consistent as we do. No cell phones. List goes on, right? So I ask again: Would you rather live today with as much money as you have right now, or have as much money as John D. Rockefeller? You just got to live in 1916 instead of 2016. You know, with with as little money as I have now. In the sense that I want more. I prefer my home. My home's got air conditioning. It's got heat. It's got clean water. It's got indoor plumbing. I prefer my car. It's not great, but it goes when I need it to. 
It's also got air conditioning and a radio in it. I prefer right now where I can eat any variety of food from around the world. I can have it delivered to me for free. You know, Amazon and Google and Uber are getting into the delivery, food delivery service, free delivery on food. My wife has a very small chance of birth complications. And even if my baby's born premature, we have more medical care available to us today than anyone, anytime on planet Earth. And if you get a blister on your foot, you can get that checked out by a doctor. When 90 years ago, there was nothing that could be done, even for the son of the president of the United States. We have it pretty good right now. And by pretty good, I mean better than anyone ever. No? Does anyone disagree? 1-800-760-KFMV. 1-800-9... Sorry, wrong, wrong show. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. So just a little perspective. Again, that could meet you at a place where that means nothing. You're just like, I don't need that right now. Whatever. Put it in your back pocket. And then uh, maybe that met you at a, at a time when you really needed a little... Uh, a little bit of perspective. one 93 I'll come back with a... Yeah, might as well. Uh, quick story on how the Los Angeles Dodgers got their nickname. It, it applies to what we were just talking about. How did the Dodgers get their nickname? I love sports nicknames. I think they're fascinating. Right? Like, why are the... Why are the I was growing up, I was like, why were the 49ers called the 49ers? Oh, it makes sense. Um yeah, why, how, does school, how did these different teams get their names? It's cool. How did the Dodgers get their name? I'll tell you that story coming up next. one 888 Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater says, a little politic doubt. <laughs> Sweet, to be honest. Uh, I got a couple more politics things coming up, but Saturday. Um, just talking about a little perspective here, a little life perspective, how good we have it today. I, I learned the other day that Calvin Coolidge, when he, was, when, he, when he was president, his son died from a staph infection, blister on his toe. Like, what? And the thing is, they knew it was a staph infection. So it wasn't like it was hard to diagnose. They just didn't know it. They knew it was. There's nothing they could do about it. Penicillin wasn't invented till four years after that. It wasn't clinical use till 20 years after that. Nothing they could do. Only 90 years ago. He died. Amazing. We have it so good today. So again, my question, just something to think about. Would you rather live today with as much money as you have right now, which I know you want it to be more, or would you rather be the richest man in, in modern history, John D. Rockefeller, you just have to live 100 years ago? And I think pretty quickly I came to the conclusion that I want to live now. It's just gratitude for what we have. So just a quick little story here about how good we we actually have it, how bad it was back then. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers got their name. They used to be called the Brooklyn Grays. They got their name because back then there were no cars. People would walk to work. and So you could either walk, take a horse, or a trolley, streetcars. So these trolleys back then were like blazing fast. 20 miles an hour. But back then, that was lightning speed. It was crazy. Nothing's ever gone that fast. When the first cars came out, the, the main detract, detractors of it said, oh my gosh, these 
cars are going to, everyone's going to die from these cars because they go 20 miles an hour, right? So 20 miles an hour, super fast. Right? And they have all these trolleys and streetcars zipping all over the place on the streets. And, and it was dangerous. So the Brooklyn Grays changed their nickname to the Dodgers as a tribute to the fans who had to avoid the maze of crisscrossing trolley cars on their way to the stadium. Fans literally had to dodge the streetcars in order to get to the stadium. So they changed their name to the Dodgers. So that's how dangerous it was back then. It was dangerous just to walk around. So much so that the the baseball team changed their name and tribute to you. Thank you for coming to the stadium because you almost died on your way here. We have it so good today. A hundred years ago, the average uh, work week was 55 hours. You lived in extremely crowded and dirty uh, homes and apartments. You spent most of your money on food. I think back then, or not most of your money, but a lot more. I think you spent about 30, 40% of your money on food a hundred years ago. And today we spend about 10, 10% of our money on food. Uh, so food's a lot cheaper. You know, the average person 100 years ago ate 10 pounds of lard every year, and f- which is a ton, and 14 pounds of chicken, which is nothing. 14 pounds of chicken. I ate 14 pounds of chicken in like three weeks or something. And they, they would have 14 pounds a year because it was so rare to eat chicken. We have it so good. We have it so good. I read the craziest article the other day. We got to run here in like a minute. Darn it. Uh, I got 60 seconds. All right. I'll just do this real fast. Article in the New York Times about why people aren't eating as much cereal. Right? So cereal, 10 years ago, they sold $14 billion of cereal. And last year, it was $10 billion, which is a big drop. $4 billion drop. Why? So they did some research. 40% of millennials, right? And there's more millennials than baby boomers. 40% of millennials said they don't eat cereal because they had to clean up after eating it. Eating cereal was too inconvenient. <laughs> Cereal's not convenient enough. The act of cleaning a bowl and a spoon, too laborious of a process for millennials. I share that just because that's how uh, perhaps too good we have it. Where cereal is inconvenience. It's an inconvenience. I'm not even going to eat it anymore. Wow. We have it good. Just want to make sure we all know how good we have it. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Why, hello. Slater Radio on uh, Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Let's play a uh, clip here from the debate the other day. Got a few more I want to play later, but um, let's knock this one out. This is clip 311. This is the Donald talking about, uh, well, you'll see. But millions and millions of women, cervical cancer, breast cancer, are helped by Planned Parenthood. So you can say whatever you want. But they have millions of women going through Planned Parenthood that are helped greatly. And I wouldn't fund it. I would defund it because of the abortion factor, which they say is 3%. I don't know what percentage it is. They say it's 3%. But I would defund it because I'm pro-life. 
but millions of women are helped by Planned Parenthood. So Trump has two or three things where he he that are not in the normal conservative Republican world that not only does he fight for, but he doubles down on all the time. And the reason he does that isn't because I don't think he really thinks these things. I think he just um, he's, he's saying them now for the next election, which is the general election. You don't say you don't praise Planned Parenthood in a Republican primary. Just don't do that. You may do it in a general election, but not in a Republican primary. So he's already moved on past the Republican primary. And there's two other things that we can get to uh, where he does the same thing. But let's just talk about this one point about Planned Parenthood, because I think we all got to be totally up on this. Trump said millions and millions of, of women are helped by Planned Parenthood. If millions and millions are helped, millions more are also victimized. Millions of babies are killed. And those millions who are quote unquote helped could have been helped through community health centers. He doubles down. So, so none of that stuff he said is necessary, but he doubles down on this. He doubles down on Bush blaming Bush for nine 11. He doubles down on the Iraq war is terrible. He doubled down on, uh, I'm not going to let anyone die in the streets. When it comes to healthcare, which is a progressive talking point, and we'll get to that. And he doubles down on Planned Parenthood. These are middle of the road things that appeal to Democrats and independents. And he does this because he thinks he has the whole thing wrapped up. There is no reason, zero reason to defend Planned Parenthood in any way whatsoever, other than it's something like 70% of Americans think that Planned Parenthood is a good organization. So Planned Parenthood over the years has been able to market themselves as a good thing, which is why it's been so hard to fund them all these years. And Trump is using those same talking points. So this is what you need to know about Planned Parenthood. There's 900 Planned Parenthoods across the country. 900. There are 13,000 community health clinics. They don't have abortions at these community health centers and they do everything that they do at Planned Parenthood and more because Planned Parenthood, they don't do mammograms. They've never performed a mammogram ever in their entire existence at Planned Parenthood. So Trump says we shouldn't bash Planned Parenthood because they help women with breast cancer. No, they don't. Not like they do at community health centers, which there are way more of way more accessible and they don't have abortions. There's no reason why Planned Parenthood should exist other than the abortion part. There's no reason they don't. Everything that they do and more is available at the community health centers. So I think we should defund Planned Parenthood and take whatever amount of money we're given to Planned Parenthood. I forget what it is. Take whatever it is, double it and give it to the already existing community health centers. That's the bottom line with Planned Parenthood. There's no reason to defend it in any way other than most people are ill-informed and think that it's a good thing and you, you want to go along with those 70%. This, this whole conversation really, it's just, it is so ridiculous. Like, what we got time? Let's do this. Let's say, just to drive this home, let's say there's a grocery store that also provides abortions. Okay, go with me or go with me. Let's say uh, there's a grocery store called Mike's Market. Right? And we have in our uh, in my grocery store, 
I provide uh, bread, milk, eggs, and abortions. And I get money from the federal government. Now I can say, whoa, hold on. None of that federal money goes to abortions. It all goes to bread, milk, and eggs. But anyone with two brain cells to rub together knows that money is fungible. So if the federal money, federal tax, your money, goes to milk, bread, and eggs, the money that would have gone to bread, milk, and eggs now goes to abortions. Everyone knows that. So that's an absurd argument from uh, Planned Parenthood. So if someone says, hold on, we need to defund Mike's market because they provide abortions. Would I get away with saying, whoa, I also sell bread, milk, and eggs. And if you run me out of business, then no one's going to be able to eat. No one will be able to eat any more food. All these, pe- all these people who come to my market, they're, they're going to starve to death if you don't give me this, this federal money. Do you want women and, and, and to starve to death? All my customers at Mike's Market, you want them to starve? You want their children to starve? That's horrible of you. Can't defund me? What if that's what if that was my argument? You'd say, no. All the women who go to your market, your grocery store, can also go to Ralph's. Because Ralph's grocery store also has bread, milk, and eggs. And they have chicken and ground beef and pork and vegetables and fruit and cereals and no abortions. <laughs> right? So they have all the food that you have at Mike's Market, way more food, and no abortions. And there's way more of them because you could go to Ralph's and Vaughn's and Albertson's and Northgate and Sprouts and Target and Walmart and Jimbo's and Trader Joe's and Wegmans where I grew up and PNC and Aldi and how many other grocery stores. Uh, I'm trying to think of where I grew up. Piggly Wiggly. Um, What are grocery stores in New York, guys? They have grocery stores in New York? Yeah, they don't have grocery stores in New York. (laughs) Bad example. Um, That's all the grocery stores I get. You get the idea. There's tons more grocery stores. And in all of these grocery stores, you can get way more than bread, milk, and eggs. And you get the added benefit of no abortions. Same thing with Planned Parenthood. All the services they provide. All of them and many more are available at the 13,000 community health centers and no abortions at those places. So Trump is playing politics here. That's all this is. And I really honestly, I can't imagine if I sat down with anyone, truly anyone in the country, even if that person goes to Planned Parenthood to get their contraception or whatever. I feel like I could sit down with them and explain to them why Planned Parenthood doesn't need to exist. It's and, and and no matter what I say, it would always go back to them saying, but eventually it would get back to them saying, but they have abortions there. That's it. That's, that's all. That's the only reason it's there for. Because I could say, if they say, oh, I need contraception. I could say, you can get that from the community health center. Oh, but I need birth planning advice. Yeah, you can get that at a community health center. Oh, but I need diapers for this. Well, you can't get that at Planned Parenthood, but you could get that at a, at a uh, pro-life pregnancy center. Crisis Pregnancy Center. Oh, but I need the pill. Okay, go to a community health center. Oh, but I need to take a pregnancy test. Yeah, do that at a community health center. But I need, like anything I tell you, you can get it somewhere else. It'll ultimately always come back to an abortion. That's all Planned Parenthood does. So for that reason, there's no need to ever defend them.
other than the polls say you should. That is a weak stance to take. That is not a conservative principle. one 933 Can I say one more thing that's going to get me in big trouble? Um, so I don't, mm, I don't really want to do it on this show because I don't know. We got other stuff to do, but I asked on my local show, I, I asked if there were any, all right, we, we had, we had a couple Trump supporters calling and I asked them if there was anything that they disagree with Donald Trump on and they all said no. And I said, come on, there's gotta be something and it's okay if there's something. Like you can support Donald Trump for president and say, ah, you know, he's really off on this thing. That's okay. You can think that. And I feel like a lot of Trump supporters and a lot of even Cruz or Rubio supporters too feel like you have to be actually, you know what the opposite of this is? Um, I really quickly skimmed this story, but Glenn Beck obviously is supporting Cruz. But I guess during the debate, he tweeted something like, uh, you know, Rubio's doing great in this debate. And Jake Tapper wrote back, like, oh, my gosh, I thought you support Cruz. And Glenn's like, yeah, but like Rubio's doing really good. He's making good points, and he's doing a good job here. Like, I can I can support Cruz and still like this thing that Rubio's doing. Sort of the same thing here. Like, you can really like Trump, but you still can be honest with yourself and say, oh, but I don't like this. This one part. This is bad. I, just, I disagree with him on this. I just want to make sure we can still disagree with people we support. I mean, this is a really serious point. This may seem obvious to you, but for a lot of people, like if you can't do that, if you can't think of one thing that you disagree with a person on, you got to take a step back and, and, and sort of just be like, hold on. Am I seeing things clearly here? Same thing for Cruz or Rubio or, or Carson, right? It's really healthy to say, I support this man for president, but I disagree with him here and I wish he'd do this instead. And if you can't say that, then you really got to take a step back and, and reanalyze because you're, you may be turning into an Obama, like an Obama supporter in 2008, where it's like, I love him no matter what, like we are better than that. And it's a, it's a position of strength to say, I support this guy and here's something I don't like about him. That's a strong position to take. Otherwise it's infatuation. We're better than that. So you can support Donald Trump and still say, whoa, he's way off on this Planned Parenthood thing. But the truth is he's not talking to you when he's talking about Planned Parenthood. He's talking to Democrats and independents for the general election. one 93 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network so want to talk a little more about uh what we kicked out the show with, with cruz i think he had to come out no i don't want to say strong that's that's i mean obviously but one i think trump's biggest chink in his armor is when he says i get along with democrats and i think cruz had an opportunity maybe still does to take trump's attack on him that he's nasty and not well liked and turn that into a positive and say, yeah, darn right, I'm not well-liked. You 
are very well liked by people in D.C. You're very well liked by Democrats. They hate me. So, American people, don't you want to support someone who, who people in D.C. hate? Because they know I'm going to destroy everything that they believe so much in. Everything that, that their livelihood, everything that they built and created, I'm going to tear it down to the ground because I believe in the Constitution. I think that's that's the play that uh, I would make if I were uh, Cruz. Um, I want to play this uh, clip here. This is Robert Reich. He's the former Secretary of Labor under Clinton, served with Ford and Carter as well. Super far left progressive economist who endorsed Ted Cruz for president. Not, not really. That was... That wasn't his intent. His intent was to tell Democrats why Cruz is worse than Trump. So it's two-minute audio. Uh, this is not to you. His audience is progressive and Democrats. Um, and his, his argument is, no, all you Democrats who hate Trump, you really should hate Cruz. Here it is. Four reasons Ted Cruz is even more dangerous than Donald Trump. Number one, Cruz is more fanatical. Now, Trump is a bully, but he doesn't hew to any sharp ideological line. Cruz is a fierce ideologue. He denies the existence of man-made climate change, rejects same-sex marriage, wants to abolish the Internal Revenue Service, believes the Second Amendment guarantees everyone a right to guns. He doesn't believe in a constitutional divide between church and state, favors the death penalty, rejects immigration reform, demands the repeal of Obamacare, and... Cruz takes a strict originalist view of the meaning of the Constitution. Second, Cruz is a true believer. Donald Trump has no firm principles except making money, getting attention, and gaining power. But Cruz has spent much of his life embracing radical right economic and political views. Number three, Cruz is more disciplined and strategic. Trump is all over the place, often winging it, saying whatever pops into his mind. Cruz, used to a clear script and a carefully crafted strategy. He plays the long game, as he's shown in Iowa. And fourth and finally, Cruz is a loner who's willing to destroy institutions. Trump has spent his career using the federal government and making friends with big shots, not Cruz. He's repeatedly led Republicans toward fiscal cliffs. In the fall of 2013, his opposition to Obamacare led in a significant way to the shutdown of the federal government. Both men would be disasters for America, but Ted Cruz would be the larger disaster. That's amazing. So, so again, that's not to you. That's to Democrats. Um, you know, Cruz is fanatical. He believes in. He doesn't believe in climate change or same-sex marriage, and he wants to get rid of the IRS and believes in the Second Amendment. And he has an originalist view of the Constitution. <gasps> I hear that. I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Cruz is willing to destroy institutions. Cruz needed to play the they hate me in D.C. card. He needed to play that card a long time ago. There's still time to play it. Vote for me. I'll destroy everything that Democrats have built over the last few decades. I'll tear it all to the ground. I'll burn it to the ground and destroy it all. Trump makes deals. I'll destroy D.C. 188-933-93. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. 
You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. John just sent me a tweet. He said, sorry, my phone cut out. Who was that speaking about Trump and Cruz? That would be Robert Reich. R-E-I-C-H? R-E-I-C-H? Reich. Robert. Yeah. Uh, former labor secretary for Clinton and uh, worked for uh, Ford and Carter and big time. He's like Paul Krugman, like big time progressive economist guy. And is, is he that? Is he a little guy? Oh, he's short, short guy. Um, or as Trump, as Trump would say something like weak, weak, he's puny. So sad, sad, sad little man. Uh, let's see here. Let's play one more clip from the debate, shall we? Let's do, um, yeah, let's wrap up this point. So I've been saying all along that Cruz needs to, needed to, maybe still has a last chance, to play the they hate me in D.C. card. They hate me there. Donald Trump, they love you in D.C. Like Robert Reich, former labor secretary under Clinton, he loves you. They're scared of me. Don't you think that's an effective card to play? Don't you think it is? I mean, like Trump says, I get along with Schumer and Pelosi. Like I get along with Democrats. If he's going to play that card, which will will play well in a general election, right? You want to be that that's good in a general, but it's still primary. Trump thinks, <laughs> thinks he's got it wrapped up. He probably does, but um, it's still primary time. Still time for Cruz and Rubio to play the no, 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 no. I don't think Rubio can play it because he is liked more so in D.C., right? More of an insider guy. Uh, but Cruz could play it, and they hate me there. Now, Rubio did for a fleeting moment play the they hate me in D.C. card. Just for just for a second, it was more of the insurance companies hate me. So that's, that's good, and I think that played well for a second. He could have gone a little stronger still, but uh, here's Cruz playing it. So we talked about that the day before the debate. I said this is my or day of the debate. So this is my suggestion for Cruz. He did it a little bit. Um, this was his best attempt at it. Uh, 304. I can only say this, and I've said it loud and clear, and I've said it for years. And many of these people are sitting right in the audience right now. Your lobbyists and your special interests and your donors. <laughs> the audience is packed with them, and they're packed with you. I've had an amazing relationship Not with politicians, <laughs> with politicians, both Democrat, Republican, because I was a businessman. As one magazine said, he's a world-class businessman. He, he was friendly with everybody. I got along with everybody. You get along with nobody. You don't have one Republican. <laughs> you don't have one Republican senator, and you work with them every day of your life, although you skipped a lot of time. These are minor details. But you don't have one Republican senator backing you, not one. You don't have the endorsement of one Republican senator, and you work with these people. Senator Cruz. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, I actually think Donald is right. He is promising if he's elected, he will go and cut deals in Washington. And he's right. He has supported, he has given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Democrats. Anyone who really cared about illegal immigration wouldn't be hiring illegal immigrants. Anyone who really cared about illegal immigration wouldn't be funding Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, wouldn't be funding the Gang of Eight. And, you know, he is right. When you stand up to Washington, when you honor the promise you made to the men and women who elected you and say enough with the corruption, enough with the cronyism, let's actually stand for the working men and women of this country. Washington doesn't like it. And, Donald, if you want to be liked in Washington, that's not a good attribute for a president. 
Right, so did you see the like? Eh, close, <laughs> close to what we were saying. Uh, yeah, Trump or uh, Cruz can be a little too sing-songy, kind of right. Uh, but that last line: if you want to be liked in Washington, that's not a good attribute for a president. It's a really good line. It just happens to come after twenty seconds of words, and you sort of lose it. You lose the uh, the drive there. Anyway, um, I rewrote that. I rewrote Cruz's response. I didn't really rewrite it. I just added a couple words here and there. I, I chose some words that are a little stronger because I think you got to go down. I don't say go down swinging. That's not right because there's still time. This is the last ditch effort here. Okay, It's last ditch effort time. Got to go strong. So I just changed a couple words and I moved some sentences around. So see if you think this is a little bit better than what uh, what Cruz said, even though these are basically what he was saying. I'd say something like, you know, Donald's right. If you want to be well liked in Washington, then uh, that's not a good attribute for a president. So if you want to be, if you want someone who's well liked in Washington, you go ahead and you elect him. He's going to cut deals, but I think we've had enough deals, haven't we? Because every time there's a deal, Republicans lose. I'm sick of deals. Trump's all about making deals. Yeah, he's going to go make deals with Pelosi and Reid and Schumer. Does anyone in this room think that they're going to come to a good deal that's good for the conclusion? You think Pelosi and Reid and Schumer are going to come up with a deal that's good for the Constitution? You know, Trump funds these enemies of the Constitution. I stand up against them, and they hate me. So yeah, Donald's right. Elect him if you want someone who's going to go along to get along, make deals, be liked. Elect me if you want someone who's going to be hated by everyone in D.C. for good reason. It's pretty much what he said, but just a little shorter, shorter, stronger words, no fluff. Got to get rid of the fluff. Get right down to it. Play that card. Play it strong. But I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, too late. It's funny how people, Trump has said all along, I make deals, I make deals, I make deals. <clears throat> and we, I think our first thought of that was, you know, we're going to make, he's going to make strong deals against Iran and Putin and stuff like that in China. And I think most people are like, okay, good. We need someone to do that because the current president's so weak on that regard. But you can turn that around, right? Like Cruz and Rubio got to turn that whole deal thing around. And apply that to him saying he's going to get along with Democrats, and you can turn that deal-making ability into a really bad thing. If you can turn deal into compromise, and compromise has become a bad word, if you can turn, combine those two words, right, those two concepts, and call Donald Trump a compromiser, that can be equated with weakness. And now you can flip the script. Because he's the strong guy, right? But if you can equate him with weakness because he compromises, because he makes deals, then I think you have a chance at uh, pecking away at his... 44% that he's getting in all these states. It's not the deals aren't the problem. It's who are you making the deals with? Right? And that's what I'd say. I'd say, Donald, you're making these deals with who? Pelosi and Schumer? You think they're going to agree to conservative principles and policies? Of course not. So again, if you can turn one of Trump's strengths into a weakness, then uh, I think you got a shot. But again, I think it may be too late. Uh, Cruz actually, guys, I don't think I sent you, uh, did I send you clip 306? I don't think I did. All right. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to send these guys this clip, uh, during the break. I want to play one more clip of, um, 
Cruz playing that card, the, the hate me in DC card. And this one's actually a little bit better. Uh, but those are the two times he did it yesterday. I thought they were both pretty effective. Uh, I would like to see more of it, though. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. You know, what we're seeing with Donald is actually the pattern of Washington, the pattern of Washington deal makers, which is they make promises, they break their words, and then when anyone calls them on it, they call you a liar. And so that's Donald's pattern over and over again. He said, for example, seven months is Donald speaking, quote, I, Donald Trump, was a member of the establishment. There's a reason Harry Reid thinks he's the best Republican up here. There's a reason Jimmy Carter said he would support Donald Trump over me because he said Donald Trump is malleable. He has no fixed set of beliefs, whereas Ted Cruz is not malleable. And every time anyone points at Donald's actual record, what he said on national television, Donald yells liar. Let me tell you something. Falsely accusing someone of lying is itself a lie, and it's something Donald does daily. Go ahead, Mr. Trump. See how he kind of did that card, right? Like... Jimmy Carter would rather have you as opposed to me. It's, it's, it's kind of it, but uh, it's not quite, not quite there. All right, moving on, moving on. Um, there was another quote I wanted to mention earlier from uh, Lincoln. We told a nice Lincoln story earlier today. Um, I love this letter here he wrote. He said, "The way for a young man to rise." is to improve himself every way he can, never suspecting that anybody wishes to hinder him. Allow me to assure you that suspicion and jealousy never did help any man in any situation. Now, there may sometimes be attempts to keep a young man down, and they'll succeed too. If the young man allows his mind to be diverted from its true channel to brood over the attempted injury. Love that quote so much. What he's saying here is don't don't be a victim. Don't play the victim card. He says you got to you got to improve yourself any way you can and don't don't suspect, don't be suspicious, don't have jealousy that people are trying to stop you. Now from time to time, there someone may do something that keeps you down. Or there's to try. And Lincoln says that the people who are trying to keep you down, they'll succeed if you allow them to. If you allow your mind to be diverted from bettering yourself. If you demi- allow your mind to be diverted from its true channel to instead brood over the attempted injury. So people can try to keep you down, but it's up to you whether or not they do. Whether or not they're successful. Isn't that awesome? Don't be a victim. Lincoln never saw himself as a victim. I thought of that quote when I heard the story the other day of Nashville. What happened in Nashville? You got to go if you've never been to Nashville, by the way. It's amazing. The public library there. A Black Lives Matter group wanted to hold a meeting in a library meeting room. And the library wouldn't let them. 
And I heard that story, and I'm like, oh, geez, like you, you're not going to let a group of black people hold a meeting there? It's terrible. Right? And that story, that's how it made the rounds. Like, oh my gosh, the library wouldn't let black people on their property. Holy cow. It's like we're back 150 years ago. They wouldn't let black people in the public library. Look how far back we've turned. It's not what happened. The library wouldn't let this Black Lives Matter group meet because the group demanded that only black people are allowed in the meeting. And the law says you can't segregate when you're meeting in the library. Right? Does that make sense? So, so the impression was, oh my gosh, the library is not going to let black people in. No, no, no. It was the Black Lives Matter group that wouldn't let white people in. So, so the Black Lives Matter group sent out a flyer that said, due to white supremacy in our local government, the meeting location has changed. Due to white supremacy. Another example of how we're indeed going backwards. The civil rights movement used to be about integration. It used to be about ending segregation, creating integration, and now the civil rights movement is about self Segregation. Isn't that interesting how that works? I came across a story the other day, and I, and I would share this to those Black Lives Matter protesters in um, Nashville who wanted to keep white people out. You may be familiar with this story. I just heard it recently. You may remember at least the most of it. 1968 Summer Olympics, Mexico City. 200-meter uh, sprint. John Carlos, Tommy Smith. They finished first and third for the United States. And you've seen this picture. If you, if you don't remember that, you saw the picture, right? Where they go to the podium, they went barefoot, representing the poverty of black people. And they were wearing the gloves like Black Panthers. And they held their fists up in the air. And you may remember that moment. If you ever stumble across a picture of that, look at the other person on the podium. Maybe you can even remember the picture. If you just close your eyes, you can remember the picture of Carlos and Smith and fists up in the air. The second place guy is a white guy. He's the forgotten character in this moment. There's actually a statue of these two black men on the podium in San Jose State. And the second place guy, the white guy, he's not even on the podium. That's how forgotten he is. Who is he? Peter Norman of Australia. He ran the race of his life that night in the Olympics. He went 20.06. That's still the Aussie record in the 200 uh, meters. Now, Australia at the time was also an apartheid country, almost as strict as South Africa. Not as bad, but pretty bad. Um, A lot of non-white immigration laws, a lot of laws against the Aborigine people, and, and just general apartheid, right? Now, Norman, the Aussie, he was against all that discrimination back in his home country. So before the podium ceremony, all three guys are standing there. And the two Americans asked the Aussie if he believed in human rights. And Norman said, I believe in God. And Carlos remembers that, remember, he remembers that moment. He said, I expected to see fear in Norman's eyes, but instead we saw love. Now, Smith and Carlos, the Americans, they were wearing a badge, like a pin on their jacket, and it said, Olympic Project for Human Rights. So Norman pointed to it and said, can I wear, can I have a pin to wear on the podium? And they didn't have an extra one, but there was an American rower right next to him, Paul Hoffman. And Paul said, here, you can have mine. 
So the three are about to go to the podium when Smith and Carlos realize that they only have one pair of gloves. So they're like, ah, oh, darn it, what do we do? And it was actually Norman's idea that they each wear one. So when you look at the picture next time, you'll see that John Carlos is wearing the glove on his right hand and Smith is wearing it on his left hand. And all three men were wearing their pins. After the podium ceremony, Smith and Carlos were suspended from the Olympic team. They were kicked out of the Olympic Village. The American rower who let the Aussie borrow his pin, he was accused of conspiracy. He was kicked out as well. Now, that was 1968. Time has gone on. And Smith and Carlos, over time, have proven that they were right. And they've been welcomed back into the Olympics and back into the USA committee's good graces. Not Norman, though. For his involvement on that podium, he was treated as an, as an outsider back in Australia. His family outcast him. He could never find any work, only as a gym teacher way in the middle of nowhere. Four years later, he was still the fastest Australian, but he wasn't allowed on the team. He became depressed and an alcoholic. Now, just before the 2000 Olympics, which were in Australia, they were in Sydney, Australia gave Norman a chance for a pardon and to be welcomed back into the sport. Now, keep in mind, he was, he was the, he's still the fastest Australian ever. And he had a chance to be welcomed back and be a part of the Olympic Committee or a part of the organizing committee for the 2000 Games. All he had to do was condemn what Smith and Carlos did in 1968. He refused. Norman passed away in 2006. The two pallbearers on the front of his casket, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Carlos said Peter was a lone soldier. There's no one more than him that Australia should honor, recognize, and appreciate. Smith said he paid the price with his choice. It wasn't, this is the key for the Black Lives Matter protest. This is what I would tell them. This is Tommy Smith. It wasn't just a simple gesture to help us. It was his fight. He was a white man, a white Australian man among two men of color, standing up in the moment of victory, all in the name of the same thing. So these Black Lives Matter protesters, who I know would look at that picture and be swelled up with pride at Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fist up in the air and all the rest, right? But those two men know that it was also that Australian man, that white Australian man, Peter Norman, who was in the fight just the same. And I actually misled you on one thing. I said that the statue of John Smith and uh, or Tommy and, and uh, Carlos and Smith at San Jose State doesn't include Norman on the podium. I misspoke. He didn't want to be on the podium. He wanted to remain off it so that other people could stand on that podium and feel what it must have been like in that moment incredibly gracious man amazing what communicating with people can do that's my advice to you black lives matter protesters this is mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network
888-900-3393. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders. How are you? Slater Radio on the uh, on the tweet machine. Got a couple videos on our Facebook page I think you'll enjoy. Uh, I'll tell you about those in a second here. I want to get right to this segment. I think it was I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago. I put on Facebook um, a, about a question that Ben Carson was asked at one of his CNN town halls. And the question was, how do you reconcile the difference, the differences between the Bible saying, take care of the least of these and conservative values? Period. <laughs> How do you reconcile the differences between the Bible saying take care of the least of these and conservative values, which apparently this woman thought that the conservative value was don't take care of the least of these. And I wrote on Facebook that there is no reconciling the differences because there is no difference. The Bible says take care of the least of these and the conservative value is take care of the least of these. More specifically, the biblical message is you go take care of the least of these. And the conservative message is you go take care of the least of these. It's the progressive value that says you, I don't worry about it. You're fine. Vote for me. I'll take money from these people over there and I'll give food stamps to those people over there. You don't have to worry about anything. though. That's the progressive mentality. And that's what needs some reconciling with the biblical message. If you want to go there. So, I put that on Facebook the other day. You can find it there. Share it if you'd like. Got a bunch of comments. Got a lot of uh, dissenters as well. Someone said, uh, Slater, the entire reason we have social safety nets now is because the need was there. If enough people had already been feeding the poor, caring for the homeless, etc., then there would not have needed to implement social safety nets. It's not true. It's not true. Um, In the 30s, the government forced private charity out of the private charity business. Government came in and pushed private charity out of the way. There was an expression back in the day, better dead than on the dole. Better dead than on the dole. And they had to change the culture. They had to change the culture and change the mentality of Americans. Where it originally was, if you took welfare, that was shameful. Shameful to take welfare. You would never admit to anyone that you took it. And they had to change the culture to say, it's shameful if you don't take welfare. And that was a process, and they're still doing it now. A couple of years ago, 2011, the USDA gave an award. I'll never forget this. The USDA gave an award to the Social Services Department in Jefferson, North Carolina. And they gave them an award, the gold award, for signing up so many people for food stamps. But it wasn't just that they signed up so many people. This is what the award said. They were congratulated for, quote, combating mountain pride. They had to combat mountain pride like that. The obstacle that they had to face in Jefferson, North Carolina, was that people thought it was shameful to get on the dole. That's mountain pride. Like they may qualify for welfare, but no, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to actually sign up for it. 
So this, these welfare, these social services people had to combat the mountain pride and sign people up, and the USDA gave them an award for it. For, for destroying a centuries-old mentality and convincing people that it was not shameful to sign up for food stamps. They got the gold award. I watched a movie last weekend, uh, Cinderella Man. Have you ever seen it? Thought it was great. It has Russell Crowe, boxing movie. I enjoyed it. It's a story of James J. Braddock, boxer in the 20s. I'm not giving anything away here. He was a uh, great boxer. Then he got injured and was decommissioned. So he was living high, had a great future. Things were looking great for him. He got decommissioned, lost everything. So he went from wealthy and successful to dirt poor. This is during the Depression now. So he's living in the slums in New Jersey. He's got three kids. They're behind on every bill, scraping for money. Eventually, they're so far behind in the bills that they cut their heat off. His wife has to send their three kids away after he promised that they would, he would never send them away. And just things are horrible, right? They, they get no milk. They don't, they're not paying anything. They're living in the basement of this tenement. It's awful. So he just hit the low of lows when his kids were sent away because it just, it just hit him that he can't provide for his families. And the movie actually doesn't even do a good enough job of showing the agony that uh, Braddock went through. He would, he would stay up at night just apologizing to his wife. Say, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm doing everything I can. Like it just destroyed him as a man that he couldn't support his family because it was his identity. His identity as a man was stripped from him. He was ashamed. And he also felt betrayed that his wife sent the kids away without telling him. So he hits rock bottom and he goes to the welfare office, signs up for public assistance, public relief. I think they called him welfare. He then got on a ferry to New York city and he goes into the office where the big shot boxing people are, right? So he goes into this big lobby area where the big shot boxing people were. Remember he was just a big time boxer a couple of years before. And he goes in front of all these people and he begs. Here's that scene. The thing is, I can't afford to, uh, I can't afford to pay the heat. I've had to farm out my kids. You know, to keep cutting shifts down at the docks, and you just don't get picked every day. I sold everything I got that anybody would buy. I went on public assistance. I signed on at the relief office. They gave me $19. I need another $18.38 so I can pay the bill and get the kids back. You know me well enough to know if I had anywhere else to go, I wouldn't be here. If you could help me through this time, I sure would be grateful. He goes around the room and in his hat, 
people put some money in his hat. And he goes around the room and he gets enough money to turn the heat back on. Long story short, he gets another chance at boxing, starts to make money again. And you know the first thing he does when he gets back on his feet? He goes back to the welfare office. And the people online, they see him there. He's all busted up after a big win, black eye, all the rest. It's just the the next day after a big fight. And he was in the newspaper, he said in the radio, you know, people listen on the radio, he's big shot and all the rest. He goes back to the welfare office, stands in line, and repays all the money that he's received. Pays it back right there. Why? This is what he told his wife the day that he signed up for welfare. He told his wife, darling, I can't stand this anymore. It just tears my heart heart into little bits to see you and the baby suffering for want of food and clothing. I'm going over to the Relief Bureau and see if they can't make us a loan until I can get something to do. Alone. He saw welfare as a loan. He had no education, no skills outside of boxing, no jobs except random shifts at, a, at the docks. Dirt poor. They'd water down the milk to make it last longer until the milk was completely cut off along with the electricity. They would search for wood in the streets to burn for fire. So absolute dirt poor. And the relief, the welfare, was a loan. And he paid it back. This is 80 years ago, 70 years ago. Would you say we have a different mentality about welfare today? Have you ever heard anyone refer to welfare as a loan? For too many, it's not a last resort. It's a way of life. It's not a loan. It's a mentality. It's not for survival. It's for maintaining a standard of living. It's not for widows and children. It's for the fully capable working age male adults. We have a government that used to give to only people who are in desperate need. Now we have a government that gives awards to bureaucracies that give money to people who don't even want it. That's a culture change. And I'd argue the more people who are on welfare, the poorer we are as a country. Not, I don't, I don't even mean financially. I forget the financial aspect of it. The more people who are on welfare, the poorer we are as a country. I'm talking about morally and spiritually. And I'm not even talking about the people receiving the welfare. Don't get me wrong. I bet there were some people thinking right now, like I'm, I'm mocking people who, who take welfare. Like I'm calling them morally, morally poor. No, 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 no. I'm not. Let me, let me be clear. I'm talking about the moral and spiritual poverty of people who are not giving to charities to help. The act of outsourcing, taking care of your fellow man who's in need, and outsourcing that to the government 
is a morally and spiritually bankrupt thing to do. Probably the most spiritually bankrupt thing is in our country. We don't need to look at welfare or, or we, we need to look at welfare not as something to be ashamed of to receive. That, that's not, that's not going to help anything. The shame should be on the people who think it's appropriate to force someone else to help their fellow man instead of helping themselves. Maybe if we had more of that, then recipients would look at it as more of a loan, as it should be. one 888 You should watch the movie Cinderella Man. It's a good flick. Mike Slater show The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, appreciate you being here today. Quick three hours. Um, I just want to tell you a little bit about some videos that we have on our Facebook page because I think they're important. And I'd love it if you could uh, go to our Facebook page and just share them. Not for me. I don't care. I don't like. I don't, I don't care how many views or shares they get. But I, I think it'll lift up the the two main people in the in the videos. Uh, so the first video that we have, you have to scroll down a little bit. I posted it. On the 24th. What day is that? Three days ago? Wednesday. So you got to scroll down a little. Uh, it's a little movie. It's four minutes about Lily. So Lily was born in a homeless shelter here in San Diego. Right after that, her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and she passed away. So now Lily, uh, she's no one. Right before her mom passed away, she started going to church. And she became pretty close with the family there. Um, the family was actually the, uh, in charge of the nursery at the, at the church. And before she passed away, she asked one of the women there if she would take care of Lily, like she take care, takes care of her own family. And the woman said yes. So when she passed away, they adopted little Lily. She was just like a year or two. So Lily's now 12. And the family thought that she was old enough to know her backstory. So they told her that she was homeless and born in a homeless shelter. I don't, I don't know how a normal 12 year old would take that. I don't know what I wouldn't know what to expect, but Lily took it as good as you could imagine. She raised $1,500, bought a bunch of toys and, and equipment supplies and stuff flew from, I think she's Indiana or Illinois flew across the country here to San Diego, went back to that homeless shelter and handed out toys to all the kids who are still living there today. You kidding me? What an amazing 12 year old. So we have that story as one video. So please share that. Cause I just want Lily to get a little recognition for doing that. You know, she didn't do it for the recognition, obviously, but just want to give her a little, little thank you for that. Uh, second story uh, video up there is uh, episode two of Bryson's make a wish journey. Bryson died. He's a sophomore in high school diagnosed with brain cancer. Long story short, we made a video about him four months ago. Uh, People Magazine found it, and then Make-A-Wish Foundation found it, and they contacted us, and they wanted to grant Bryson a wish, which is a 66 Mustang. 
to restore it. He wants to restore it. He doesn't want the car because he's greedy. He wants to be in the restoration process. He wants to go through it. So we found this car, and, and it's going through the process now. This thing is a piece of junk. Um, so episode two is when Bryson receives word that he's going to get a car, and um, he sees it for the very first time. And he sees this car with cancer and the best auto oncologist in San Diego working to put it back together. Amazing story. All of it's on our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and you can see it all right there. And we can stay in touch for the rest of the week because it's going to be a fun week. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Thank you so much for being here, Slater Crusaders. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.